Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 106 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today, our guest is Tim Fall. He's a superior court court judge in Northern California. He also teaches judicial ethics to experienced judges throughout his state. And he's a writer. He's got a brand new book that's just out in which he writes about the pressures of being a judge and his battle with mental illness. Now, I know Tim from his Facebook posts where he advocates for women and other marginalized members of society. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you very much for having me here. So let's start by talking about having you share a little bit about why you have why you, a male judge, have an interest in supporting and encouraging women in your profession as a judge and in the church and in society generally. Because I mean, I want to know what the connection is because we don't typically see men coming out in droves to support women or other marginalized members of society. So what is the connection for you? What's the drive? I think like a lot of uh, people my age who grew up in California, uh, that the experience of growing up through the civil rights movement and the women's lib movement was something that um, formed a lot of my attitude uh, about uh, people who are marginalized. Uh, not that I knew what that phrase meant uh, way back then, because I was just a kid, but uh, it it did have a big impact on who I am and what I see and value around me. And then uh, becoming a Christian in my early 20s, uh, I would read uh, the Bible and, you know, it says a lot about uh, people who are oppressed. Uh, Jesus in his first uh, recorded synagogue sermon. If you look at Luke four, uh, he preaches on uh, freeing the oppressed and uh, helping people who are in need, people who are marginalized and cast out of society. So I, I guess I came at it from both directions, uh, my life experiences and my faith. So I'm curious to know then as a judge, I mean, so a lot of the women that listen to this podcast, they are, most of them are either living in abusive relationships or they're trying to get out of them or they're already out. But many of the women have come in contact with the judicial system in the effort of trying to get divorced from an abusive an abusive spouse. And it's been a very, it's a scary experience. And I'm sure there are going to be women listening to this episode who are anticipating being in court with their abuser, facing a judge, having their whole future lie in the hands of a judge. I'm wondering if judges receive any kind of training in, in, to understand where these people are coming from people who are kind of they're like the underdog and they're trying to get out of really bad situations and they're maybe being um, used and powered over by other people i don't know what happens uh, with judicial education in other states but in california uh, we have mandatory education 
for judges who are going into the family law assignment that includes um, domestic violence uh, education and domestic violence dynamics. Uh, same thing in uh, criminal law, where uh, we deal with uh, crimes that are charged under what would be called domestic violence uh, statutes or situations. So there's a lot of education in that. And then generally, uh, we also have education about um, implicit bias, um, microaggressions, um, being uh, bringing a fair uh, appearance, not only the fair um, actual fairness of a courtroom, but the appearance of fairness in courtrooms to people who are coming in uh, and may not really understand what is going on in the courtroom. So it's not just people who are in a domestic violence situation necessarily there. Those, those trainings uh, have a much broader application. Okay. Is, do you think California is an outlier that way in the, in that, or is this, I mean, maybe you don't know. I have no idea what okay. other states do with their judicial education. Okay. Cause that seems pretty amazing to me. My, my, I guess my follow-up question to that would be how, how can judges help? How, how can judges help if they are supposed to be you know, unbiased and just be looking at the, like, this is a common thing that happens. A woman will come and she won't necessarily have the paper proof or the paper trail or whatever that I feel like judges are, are looking for and needing. So how can they, and, and oftentimes because of that, you know, the equitable ruling is and with, you know, because there's no proof of anything and it's not a criminal, it's not a criminal case. So then they just end up losing a lot of maybe things are equitable as far as financially, although sometimes that can go wonky too. But um, as far as like custody of children and that kind of thing, it doesn't always go in their favor. And how do judges even parse that out and be able to tell the difference? Because everyone's got it the same, you know, everyone's got the same story. I mean, the men are saying the same thing. Yeah, she, you know, abusers will just accuse the woman of abusing them. So how do judges figure all of that out? I don't know that um, I would say that having the paper trail is what judges look for or need. I make a lot of decisions in cases where it's just oral testimony that is um, leading to the decision. And both in criminal and family law, uh, those decisions can often be a finding of um, domestic violence having occurred. So I'll sometimes uh, have cases that are not necessarily custody. It could just be a restraining order that's being requested in a domestic violence situation. We actually have a process in California to pursue what's called a domestic violence restraining order. And um, yeah, a lot of times there's no paper trail. There are no texts. Uh, there's no voicemails left. I'm just listening to someone testify about what happened and then, uh, can make a finding based on that, that there was violence and that the restraining order is warranted. So I, I don't know what other judges are doing in other states, uh, but in California, we, we are trained in how to evaluate the evidence and make the uh, orders accordingly. I think another thing, though, and you, you mentioned in, a, in the context of custody, in California, uh, custody determinations are made on the basis of what's in the best interest of the child. Um, so going outside of domestic violence for a moment, let's say 
um, one of the spouses cheated on the other spouse. And uh, so the aggrieved spouse, uh, woman or man, comes to court and says, well, he had an affair, so give me the kids and deny him all custody. <laughs> it's like, well, that, that's, that's not how we make custody decisions on the basis of who had an affair. We make custody decisions based on what's in the best interest of the kids. Now, that affair may have been in a circumstance that does then touch upon what's, interest, what's in the best interest of the children. It may not. Um, and for one person then to say, now let's get into domestic violence, perhaps, for one person to say, um, she had an affair, and then she says, and he beat me, <laughs> then we're talking about, you know, the, the affair is not necessarily going to be seen by the judge as being of equal importance to the best interest of the kids as the domestic violence. So in California, if there's a finding of domestic violence, then there's an automatic presumption that the perpetrator does not get custody. And wow. for the perpetrator to get custody rights, they need to somehow overcome that presumption with evidence that shows that they are still someone who should have some sort of custodial right because that would be in the best interest of the child. So the burden then shifts, right? Once domestic violence is found against the mom or the dad, uh, then that parent bears the burden of proving that it's still in the best interest of children for them to have uh, some level of custody rights. That's very fascinating. And you have, do you, and you have no idea if, I just feel like, I, maybe you could just give me your opinion. Do you think that, I mean, we, when I think, so I come out of this very conservative background and upbringing. And in my head, these were all the biased thoughts that were in my head, okay? California mm -hmm. is just this liberal, flaming liberal state that just wants to, you know, I don't know, it's just all negative, okay? And then all of the, these beautiful Bible Belt states, they were the ones that were the godly ones, and they just, uh, you know, cared about the people, and they were flinging guns all over the place, but they're the, you know, they're the ones that cared about people. So now, at coming out of all of that and doing a whole bunch of deconstruction and trying to figure trying to get my bearings on life here. Right. It feels like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, most of the people that I work with, the women that I work with come mm -hmm. out of the Bible belt. Like that's where, that's where there is like rampant abuse going on. Right. And, and those same people are also running into so many roadblocks in the legal system, trying to keep their kids safe. And because the bias in those places seems to be, based on my talking to women, the bias seems to be more towards the male rather than the female. And it doesn't matter what what the testimonies are. It's just there's just this natural bias. Can you yeah. talk about that? I, I would say that in California, there is as much um, abuse going on, uh, domestic violence going on, uh, per capita as anywhere else, probably. Um, but it's the cultural issues that you have to overcome. So if you're in a region where um, the patriarchy is strong, then uh, when someone comes in with a domestic violence claim, it may be a matter of, yes, uh, he's guilty of domestic violence. However, the man is the head of the household, so we are not taking the children out of his life. Yes. You know, that's that's a cultural issue. I'm not talking about legal matters right now. I'm just talking culturally. So how much support is that woman going to get uh, in her community, uh, church, 
uh, social clubs, uh, the kids' school, whatever it might be. Um, and then you come out to a place like California, where the patriarchy is not as strong. Uh, it's not that it's non-existent here, but it's not as strong. So uh, we don't have somebody saying, well, still the man's the head of the family, and therefore we're going to culturally or socially uh, still have a bias uh, toward the man. Um, there may be other biases that do still do that. I mean, there's a lot of things in the law that are um, there, I mean, baked in from centuries ago that we're still finding will have an effect on uh, legal issues mm -hmm. in lots of areas of the law. So it's not that cultural biases have no effect on how the law is administered in a place like California, as opposed to Alabama, as opposed to, I don't know, North Dakota uh, or Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's just, I think that in California, uh, the likelihood of abuse is as high as anywhere else. I just think that um, how it is handled and viewed as a society might be different uh, from some other parts of the country. Okay, interesting. All right, so you we've been talking about physical violence. I, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your experience with seeing, or maybe even confusion with seeing emotional abuse coming into your courtroom and how you, because um, that's actually, those are the people that I'm working with. Yeah. Um, Christian women who are being emotionally and spiritually abused and manipulated, right. controlled. Um, <clears throat> that's a little more subtle and it's very difficult to, for people to understand it. It's difficult to, 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 um, figure out what's up and what's down, who's telling the truth. Do you see that a lot in your courtroom? And what do you do with cases like that? I was actually talking about, um, physical and emotional and verbal abuse okay. uh, when I was, when I was talking about these, uh, various types of, uh, violence cases. So, I guess to me, um, you know, I've been doing this for over two and a half decades now. Yeah. Um, and I've uh, been on the bench since 1995. And I uh, would say that um, the uh, violence or the abuse, however it comes in, uh, is almost never uh, one dimensional. Uh, verbal abuse has a component of emotional abuse. Emotional abuse has a component of uh, verbal abuse or physical abuse has a component of all of these others as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they all just keep going together. So yeah, I, I think in uh, at least in my uh, training sessions on uh, violence and it could be domestic violence or any other type of violence, uh, we don't look on it as, uh, oh, that's physical violence. So that's different from something else. Okay. Uh, in fact, in a in a non-domestic relationship, uh, we have a statute that we sometimes refer to as criminal threats uh, statute in California. And it is considered a type of violence or serious felony, but it has no component of actually committing a violent, physically violent act upon someone else. Uh, it's, it's the words and conveying the threat of violence that is... Um, being punished. This is very encouraging actually to me. So what would you tell, what would you, t for the women who are listening, who maybe are looking at possibly being in court in the future, 
would, what would you tell them as far as, cause I know they're, I know they're scared. I, I never ended up having to go to court, but I was terrified that I was going to have to go and that I was going to have to try to explain my situation, which had been, I'd been shut down by the church and by so many people to, so to, to talk about my situation in front of a judge felt so intimidating to me. I mean, my brain would just shut down just thinking about it. Right. And so what would you say as a judge, if you could talk to the women coming into your court who are coming from the background that, that these women are, what would you say to them to encourage them or to empower them in your courtroom? Um, I don't know that I would say anything to encourage or empower um, because that's not really my job. Um, I would uh, say to anybody coming into court, uh, woman or man, uh, on any type of case at all, uh, do your best to be as prepared as possible. Um, in our area, uh, we have a law school that has a uh, family law clinic, uh, which assists low-income people, including in domestic violence cases. But in every courthouse in California, there is also, I shouldn't say every courthouse, because some counties have lots and lots of courthouses that don't even do family law cases. But anyway, my point is that in every county anyway, there is a family law facilitator in the courthouse paid for by state funds uh, who is there to advise people in their cases. And they can do everything from uh, tell you how to put together your paperwork with a request for a domestic violence restraining order or how to conduct a full-blown family law trial on custody and support. Uh, so I would tell people, take advantage of whatever the resources are uh, to be fully prepared. Um, and uh, I know you're uh, primarily focused upon uh, how women are going through all of this, but I would also tell people, um, because I get criticism from men's rights advocates sometimes, uh, that uh, the vast majority of people who are in court on Issues of domestic violence um, are women as the victims, but there are also those cases where the men are the victims. And so if you're looking at a judge and saying, uh, finally, somebody is going to stand up for the women, uh, no, it's finally somebody who's going to give me a fair hearing because nobody has done that before. Mm -hmm. uh, so if they come into my courtroom, what they're going to get is a fair hearing. They're not going to get somebody who's going to be an advocate standing up for their side. Um, you know, if you're looking for a judge to do that, then I think you're misunderstanding the judicial system. And you're probably hoping for something that would be a complete disaster um, if judges listened to both sides and then said, oh, now I know who to be an advocate for. Let me go beat up the other side for you. Because gotcha. that's not what you do. I mean, that, and nobody wants a judge to do that, do they? I mean, right. what if I that the that the man was right? Do the women want me to go beat up on the women? I mean, no, I mean, that's, right. that's not our job. Right. Um, our job is to have a, a place where they can come in and know that they will be treated respectfully and fairly, and they'll be given a full hearing and that the decision that's made is one that is made without regard for which person is uh, nicer uh, or has more power or anything like that. Uh, the decision is going to be made based on the evidence that's presented and the legal standards that apply. Um, one of my colleagues who 
uh, long retired now, but when I first came on, she was one of the senior judges. And she said, you do family law. And at the end of the hearing, you have made one permanent enemy and one temporary friend. <laughs> and, and that temporary friend will become your permanent enemy as soon as you have another hearing and you've ended up ruling against them. And then you have two permanent enemies. And that's how family law goes. Um, now, that's an, that's an exaggeration. Um, <laughs> I've had family law hearings where uh, both sides have had some level of appreciation for how the hearing went. Um, but yeah, you don't, you don't finish a family law hearing and then have both sides say, boy, this was the best thing ever judge. Thank you so much for that ruling because you just told me I only get my kids 50% of the time. You're the best. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's a great segue into a, a question now that gets into your, what really what your book is about. Um, Because what you've just described sounds like, it sounds like a profession where you're just, you know, overall in general, people don't really like you that much. Does that affect you at all? I mean, does that have an effect on you? Is that, did that play a role in, um, or does that play a role in your battle with anxiety, depression, other things going on in your life? Um, Not in the courtroom. Um, If you're in the courtroom, hoping that by the end of the hearing, people are going to like you, <laughs> then, then don't be a judge. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, just not going to happen. And, that, and that's not the, the goal. The goal is, um, what are the legal standards? Uh, what findings uh, would be uh, made on the evidence presented? And how does that then lead to the decision? So legal standards uh, would be something like, um, let's say in a criminal case where uh, they waived a jury, so I'm the one determining uh, guilty or not guilty, the legal standard ultimately is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, fine. Then I have to make findings. Um, Let's say it's a car theft case. So there's a few findings that would have to be made beyond a reasonable doubt before the person could be found guilty. So my findings would be, uh, was the person driving a car belonging to another person with the intent to deprive the owner temporarily or permanently of the use of the car without the owner's permission. So I have to make all of those findings. And then if I make all of those findings that yes, those have been proved beyond a reasonable doubt, um, then I can make the ruling that the person is guilty. So that's what a judge does. And I don't think when I'm done, is everybody in the courtroom going to like me? <laughs> you know, that's just, that's ridiculous. So I don't care if they like me or not. I care that I've made the right um, findings and rulings and stuff along the way and applied the right legal standards. So that, I guess that's part of it is uh, the actual courtroom stuff. Um, yeah. Don't, don't hope that people are going to like you at the end. Um, and especially as you go through all of this, there's a ton of other things that have to happen. You know, maybe one of the attorneys, wants to put on evidence of prior auto thefts and the other attorney wants to keep them out. And there are standards that apply as to whether I would let that evidence in or not. And I have to follow those standards. And if I find that um, of these, I don't know, let's say the person has five convictions for auto theft and I find that two of them are not closely enough uh, fitting the standards to come in, but three of them 
fit squarely within the standards to come in. So I say, okay, I'm going to um, exclude these two and I'm going to allow these three, you know, are they going to say, oh boy, the judge split the baby as best he could. We both love the judge. <laughs> or is it more likely that one of them is going to say he should have kept out all five and the other one's going to say he should have left in all five. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't care what they think <laughs> if they, yeah. you know, and, and frankly, if I get it wrong, there's a court of appeal that will be happy to tell me so. <laughs> so I just figure <laughs> I'm making rulings. Take me up on appeal if you don't like it. What really bugs me, and, and it's not a matter of whether they like me or not, but I do get a little peeved when attorneys might uh, criticize a ruling uh, to their colleagues. Can't believe the judge made that ruling on the evidence. Mm. And I think, well, that's great. Did you take me up on appeal? No. <laughs> and what are you complaining about? Right. Wasn't a big enough deal for you to do anything. Right. So, yeah. So speaking of attorneys, do you yeah. um, do you very often see women or men represent representing themselves? And in those cases, is it, what is your thought on that? I mean, cause there's a lot of women who can't afford an attorney and they've, yeah. want, you know, people will ask me, is it okay to represent myself? What are my chances if I represent myself? What would you say to that? Yeah. Um, for example, our family law facilitator in our courthouse can equip someone uh, quite well to uh, represent themselves at a hearing in family law. But you also have to have the ability to pull things together. Um, the old line about uh, someone who acts as their own attorney has a fool for a client, I don't think that's true. Uh, it can be. I mean, there are some people who, you know, they shouldn't go to law school and become attorneys and they shouldn't act as their own attorneys either. They just don't have the ability to, to do that. They need some help. Mm -hmm. um, and yet sometimes they still end up having to represent themselves. And that's where the judge, we have an ethical duty in California. And I mean, it is written in the law that this is something we're required to do. We have an ethical duty to take the necessary steps to, pro to uh, provide someone uh, the ability to present their case. Uh, so as a judge, uh, if I had attorneys there, I would just look at them and say, you put on your witnesses, you ask them the questions, I'll make rulings at the end. Uh, if I have two people who are representing themselves, could be a family law case, could be a small claims case, and in small claims, you don't get to have an attorney uh, in California. Well, then I'm the one who's, I might look at them and say, so why is it you're asking me for a restraining order against this person? Tell me what happened. Or why is it that you are suing this person for um, not paying you something? Tell me what happened. And I kind of leave it open. Uh, but if they sound like they're fumbling through something, I am ethically obligated to try to get that information from them. So I might say, um, wait a moment. Are you now talking about a different incident or are we still on the first date that you mentioned? And they'll say, oh, I'm talking about a, a different one now. And then I'll say, are you done with the first date? <laughs> because I'd like to hear all of that part right now. What happened on the first date you mentioned? And they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, there is one more thing from that. It's like, okay, well, I'm not becoming their attorney and I'm not advocating things. I'm the finder of fact, and I will do that with both sides. Uh, to try to get the information that I need in order to make a decision. But I'm ethically obligated to do that. It is actually written in our code of judicial regulations that I have to take those types of steps. 
to provide someone an opportunity to be heard fully. And like I say, it's, it's not necessarily family law. It could be somebody who's representing themselves in a criminal case, probate, whatever. Well, that, that's also encouraging. I hope, I hope that the women that are listening are seeing that it's much less scary than they may be. Here's the problem. Not knowing things is what's scary. If you sure. have, if you understand things and know things, then you can, then it's just, it, it's the unknown that's so frightening. Okay. Right. So I want to, um, I want to get back to, I want to talk about your book now. Okay. Okay. And actually, yeah, actually let's talk about the, let's talk about who you, writers read. They do. Yeah. And you are a reader and a writer. So who are, what are your recommendations or who are the, the best female writers that you have found to be most helpful to you that you could recommend to my audience? Uh, okay. Uh, Jane Austen. <laughs> Boom. Um, Dorothy Sayers. Can you give a, a brief sentence about why, like what your like one reason why you really like that particular author? Sure. Sure. If you are hoping to understand how people relate to one another and how deeply that is felt inside of people, then read Jane Austen. Mm. Besides the fact that she is completely entertaining and at times such a hoot. That, um, you know, you know, just read her stuff and people always say, oh yeah, well, I've read Pride and Prejudice. And I'm, and I'm thinking you have barely scratched the surface. Yeah. <laughs> read, read all six novels and then go find uh, her uh, unpublished uh, juvenilia that is available online. All the things that she wrote before she became published when she was still uh, a teenager and a young woman. Um, yeah, go, go find those Aww. things and, and read them. Um, so anyway, so Jane Austen, uh, Dorothy Sayers, because she deeply goes into um, social issues that are timeless. And she does it in the context of uh, mystery writing. I'm thinking of the um, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey um, novels, for example, okay. um, where in uh, Gaudy Night, uh, which is just about smack in the middle of the series, um, she focuses on a women's college in um, Oxford University system. And the, um, the uh, issue of uh, women, women's rights, women in education, uh, women as intellectual leaders, uh, women as uh, social leaders, um, she writes this story that touches on all of this without preaching, oh, hey, I'm going to do a women's lib novel. <laughs> she didn't, right. but that's what the book tackles. Yeah. So I'd say both of them. If you're looking for people who are writing now, um, I strongly suggest uh, reading Amy Bird, uh, B-Y-R-D, uh, and Amy is spelled A-I-M-E. -E. Um, she's got five books out by now, I think. Uh, her first one was Housewife Theologian. Um, which was also the name of her blog way back when. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, her most recent one, I think it's Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, is a title I could be off a little bit. Um, Amy is 
not an egalitarian, <laughs> but uh, but she is a friend of mine, and she and I have talked about this at length. Um, and she um, she writes um, theologically, doctrinally, scripturally about the importance of men and women having um, deep and strong relationships with each other. Uh, for example, her most recent book goes at the the uh, concept of uh, pursuing biblical manhood and pursuing biblical womanhood. And she essentially says, for crying out loud, the Bible says we pursue Christ. <laughs> and, and she wrote yeah. an entire book about that. That's um, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. But if someone's going to say, Hey, Tim recommended this book and I read it, she's not egalitarian. It's like, no, she's not, <laughs> but, but her writing is so strong. Um, she is just uh, very, very good at communicating this. So I would say Amy Bird uh, is where you go. I'm also looking forward to Valerie Hobbs, uh, Dr. Uh, Hobbs. Yeah. Uh, she has a book on language. Now she's a linguist mm -hmm. and she has a book on language in scripture uh, that's coming out next year. And I am so itching to get a hold of it because I love words. Uh, and I love language and I love looking at linguistics when it's dumbed down enough to where I can understand it. <laughs> uh, and I don't think she is going to dumb anything down. It's going to be uh, challenging, but I am really, she is writing it, I think, for the non-academic market, though, even oh, though she good. is an academic herself. Um, so I'm really looking forward to uh, that book from Valerie Hobbs. And I would tell people to also read Amy Bird. Okay. I need to have both of those women on here. Those oh, absolutely. Are, I, I'm sorry, what? I say it absolutely and have them on together because they're friends. They know each other. Oh my word. That would be so much fun. I'm totally yeah. going to do that. Yeah. So Amy is in Maryland and Valerie is in England. So you'll have to coordinate <laughs> your timelines. <laughs> the lands. Okay. Okay. This is good. All right. So, so those are the things that you read or some of the things that you read. I'm sure you read a million other things. Oh, I read and a lot of, um, a, a lot of cozy mysteries. That's what I, please my time on um so that's do you like louis louise is it penny is it penny louise or louise penny can't remember i i you have don't not know read either her. one <laughs> I, I i've not read her but i do okay. read uh catriona mcpherson and um uh who writes the uh, dandy gilver mysteries um let's see another one that i recently uh have been reading is uh francis brody who does the Kate Shackleton mysteries. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I've not read them, but I've, I know what you're talking about. And then there's, um, gosh, I wish I remembered the name of the author. Uh, she writes the um, Royal Spinus uh, mystery series. Um, and uh, That's a clever anyway. title. Yeah, it, it's about a very minor, very like 35th in line for the throne, oh, minor fun. member of the royalty who... Um, is uh, uh, penniless and cast out on her own uh, to fend for herself kind of thing uh, when her father, the Duke, uh, <laughs> goes penniless and then dies. So <laughs> she is off on her own. And then and she does, she solves mysteries around the world kind of thing. Cool. She's, so that's great. I, I've really enjoyed those. Um, so yeah, I read the cozy mysteries, although I just ordered a couple of books that are going to be a little... Uh, more serious. Um, one that should be delivered today is the annotated complete poetry of Langston Hughes. 
Um, and oh then I also ordered uh, Esau Macaulay's uh, Reading While Black, and that's going to come to me in a few mm. days. So, Well, those are timely uh, books, too, for our time. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay, so let's talk about your book now. Why don't you tell everyone what it's called and what it's okay. about? Because you've teased them by mentioning it like three I times. Know. <laughs> I know, and we never quite get there. Let's go there now. Okay. Running for Judge, Campaigning on the Trail of Despair, Deliverance, and Overwhelming Success. That's the name. Okay. Okay. What else do you want to know? Well, I want to know, I mean, we... I want to tell them what it's about because I touched on it a little bit because I mentioned that you struggled with mental illness. Right. So they're probably all thinking in the back of their mind because here's the thing. A lot of these women are very familiar with that, those with that they're familiar with it in their own lives. They're familiar with it in their children's lives. Right. They're familiar with other kinds of mental illness in their husband's lives, in their families of origin and and it, I feel like it's more of a recent breakthrough that we're finally talking about it, getting help for it, and whatever. So, but yours yours is a bit of a spin because you're a judge. People tend to look at people like that and think, "Well, you must have your life all together." And you have even said, "You know, when I'm in my courtroom, this is my courtroom." I mean, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, "It's surely it's got to have some kind of effect on you, though." I mean, right. hearing all those stories and and being responsible for all those lives. So, talk, talk yeah. about it. So, I wrote the book about my reelection campaign back in two thousand eight. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, uh, I became a judge in nineteen ninety five, and the book talks about how I received a judicial appointment, and then immediately had an election cycle come around. Because in California, you can be appointed to fill out an unexpired term, say a judge retires or gets elevated Mm -hmm. uh, before their term is up. So the governor then appoints somebody to fill out the term. And that happened to me, 1995. Had to run for re-election in in, uh, 1996 and then 2002. 2008, uh, 2014, 2020, we have six-year terms. And the only time someone decided to run against me was in 2008. Uh, So I'd been on the bench for 13 years and somebody wanted to take my job away from me. Mm. And that uh, was a huge source of stress because I had no background in campaigning or politics or anything like that. Um, And it affected me physically and uh, mentally uh, my my body and my brain chemistry both were thrown off. I ended up um, coming down with pneumonia uh, just mm-hmm. a few weeks into the campaign uh, and uh, with uh, what was told to me anyway as a generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis uh, with depressive episodes. And then I went on medication for uh, anti-anxiety meds. I went on medication for my pneumonia uh, infection. Um, And that uh, was the story of the book, is what it's like to be a judge, what it's like to be challenged and have to run a re-election, and what it's like when all of this then brings on uh, mental and physical health impairments. Um, and so you mentioned how people are saying, oh, you must, you must have it all together because you're a judge. But really, yeah. um, you know, people, so many people uh, deal with mental illness. I put in the book that the statistic uh, is essentially one in four people will have 
uh, anxiety, depression, or both at some point in their life, if not as uh, just a, a lifelong uh, situation. Yeah. So, I would think it would be even more than that. It, it I don't know. Be. Maybe I just know a bunch of, you know, maybe everyone in my life has right. problems, but. Right. So the stress of going through that is what brought all of this on for me, the physical and mental issues. Um, but they're all medical issues. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book is because people who say, I don't have mental illness and I don't know anybody who does, um, they're wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. They may themselves not have mental illness, but they certainly know someone who does. It's one in four. Yeah. Um, and sure, that's a, a broad average, but let's say you know 100 people and everybody knows more than that. But let's say you know 100 people. Are you saying that you don't know 25 or 20 or 15? Because maybe I know 40, right, who are mentally ill and you only know 15. But it's 100 people. Somebody in there is mentally ill. Right. They have, and, and I'm not talking about uh, bipolar and schizophrenia and a whole bunch of other things. I'm just talking about anxiety and depression, yeah. let alone all the numbers of people who have other types of mental illnesses. Um, so uh, I wrote the book in order to take the stigma off of talking about mental illness, uh, especially from someone who's not only an elected official, um, I'm a constitutional officer of the state of California with statewide jurisdiction. <laughs> and I am writing about having a mental health diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, I think it's important that people see that even uh, those who are the officials in the state uh, helping to run the government are also um, dealing not only with mental illness, perhaps, but are able to do their job extremely well. Um, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back by saying I do my job extremely well. I'm just saying that I do know how to do my job and I do do it well. Um, I'm, a, I'm an effective judge. I've been doing this for a long time. I train other judges in how to be effective judges. Um, and the mental health issues have not, uh, that diagnosis did not disqualify me right. from being, uh, to get the job done. Right. Well, and I think that opens up the conversation for other leaders in, right. in government and in, in all, in all spheres of society, just because you're a leader doesn't mean that you don't, that you're not human. And now, can you imagine if, uh, people talked about their pastors, let's say. And one of them said, oh, my pastor uh, preached on mental health issues last week. And somebody else said, really? Because my pastor was just talking about her battles with mental health and, and how that affects her. And having those conversations normalized. Yeah. And not like, oh, your pastor has a mental health diagnosis. You better yep. take her out of the pulpit. He better yep. not be preaching anymore. Uh, That's right. <laughs> it's like popping a zit. You got to right. get the stuff out and expose it so that you, the mm -hmm. healing can come. Yeah. You know, judges being identified as zits. I'm going to start using that in my, uh, <laughs> in my training classes. I know. As I said that, I was thinking, Natalie, shut your mouth. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. Always reminds me of John Belushi's part in the uh, food fight in Animal House. <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> I hope some uh, someone is going to know what you're talking about. I'm afraid I didn't see that one. So. Oh yeah, well you had to have been, um, you know, a high school or college kid back in 1980 or so. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I was. I graduated in '85. But you know From, what? I was. Remember, I was in the conservative. I was. I grew up in the Bill Gothard 
right thing. So we yeah. didn't watch things like Animal House. Yeah, no movies. No, no. So, um, yeah. And if okay. you're dancing, make sure there's enough room for the Holy Spirit between you and your partner. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, that or is one thing I'll say. Talking? If you, for <laughs> those ahead. of you who are listening and you want to, um, you want to follow Tim on Facebook. Let's see, Tim Fall. There's probably a million Tim Falls. How yeah, are you going to find I, you on Facebook? Oh, well, I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. I, <laughs> yes. um, so I forgot that I have show notes. <laughs> we okay, I'm going to let you talk now and I'm going to be quiet. Okay, so uh, Facebook and Twitter, I'm sure if you just um, put in the search bar, Tim Fall, uh, you'll eventually stumble upon which one is mine. Um, and then I do have a blog uh, timfall.com, which has all of those connections on the contact page, I think it is. Um, and uh, I'm also, I have a YouTube channel because I post two minute videos every day. Uh, every day? Yeah. Wow, that is commitment. Yeah, you know, they're unscripted. And some of them are really, really good. And some are just like, wow, what did Tim say that for? But anyway, <laughs> I still put them out. doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> and I try to be encouraging or sometimes I'm being topical. Uh, you know, I might talk about things that are going on in my life and uh, more often talking about how things might be affecting other people. Um, yeah, I started doing these two-minute videos last March. Um, the first one I did was an effort to encourage people just as we were going into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it was so well received that I did another one the next morning. And then I did another. And then I just kept doing them. That's amazing. So the COVID has had such an impact in, in positive ways in so many areas. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so... I will. So those of you who are listening, I'll put all of this in the show notes with links, but I will say this, that I, Tim is, he's been kind of serious in this podcast, but wait a sec. I, I think you've been pretty serious, but no, I, a, but on Facebook, he's pretty funny and also really smart. So, I mean, what better combination can you have than funny and smart? And he doesn't talk. He's not like... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is just my imagination, but I think of a judge as talk, you know, talking way above everybody else. Tim's not like that. When I found out he was a judge, I was like, what? I guess I didn't know what you did. You were just Tim Fall. <laughs> what does this guy do to make any money? All right. <laughs> you know, and, and people from my book too, I, I should point out that even though my memoir is a memoir of a judicial reelection and talking about, um, mental health issues, there's some pretty funny stories uh, in there as well. So <laughs> if people are looking for insights on what it's like to be a judge, uh, they want to hear some uh, funny stories, they want uh, some serious stuff, um, it's all in there. Um, and it's a quick read, too. I mean, so, or you can do it on audiobook, uh, go to Audible, and it's there. Are you reading? Uh, do you read yeah, it? It, it? It's my voice. That's Love me. It. And awesome. so, so if my voice has been grating on your nerves, folks, <laughs> don't get the audible version and she just make him shut up, then please get the paperback. Uh, <laughs> no, or, I think you have a great voice and it's very easy to listen to. I would totally get the audible version. 
Well, you can also get it on Kindle if you want uh, a an ebook version as well. So okay. there's that. Um, yeah, my my wife says that my voice puts her to sleep. So oh, that's careful. a good thing. That's a really yeah. good thing. It, it's just something we have to be careful about uh, if we're praying together at night uh, <laughs> that we don't do it while we're both already yawning our heads off. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Well, this, I don't think you've put anyone to sleep in this podcast episode. So, and I, I just want to thank you so much for giving us some of your time and I wish you the best on your book. And, um, I will definitely be putting links to, um, the book, the different versions of the book as well in the show notes. So those of you who are listening can head over to flyingfreenow.com forward slash 106. That's this episode number. And there you will find the show notes for this episode. So thanks again, Tim. Can I mention a discount for people who might be looking for my book? Absolutely. All right. If you don't like to shop Amazon, and a lot of people don't, go to the publisher webpage, uh, WIPF, W-I-P-F, and stock, all spelled out, S-T-O-C-K, WIPF and stock, and search for running for judge. Uh, at checkout, use the code JUDGE40. So that's all together, J-U-D-G-E-4-0. And it will give you 40% off the list price. Wow. Okay, so is the are those letters all caps? Are they all lowercase? All caps, JUDGE, okay. and then the number 40. And squish it all together without any spaces. Okay, no spaces. Okay, because I will put that link in also. Did you include that link in? Did you send me that link or do I need to get that from you? It's quite possible that I did, but I'll send it to you. All right. Well, no matter what you guys who are listening, I will make sure that link is also included in there. And I'll put the the password in there too, just in case you forget, Judge 40. Is that because you're only, is that because you're 40 years old? No. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> People have probably already done the math when you mentioned the 80s, so. <laughs> you know, I, I, I will point out that uh, here's a spoiler for the book. Yes, I was 35 when I became a judge. Wow, that is so young. Yes, it is. Yep. Oh my goodness, do they uh, even know what they're doing at age 35? I didn't, you know, I'm 60 and I don't know what I'm doing. So what are you talking <laughs> about? That's true. <laughs> Good point. All right, well, I think that's a wrap. Until next time, fly free.